It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. So we're having a historic heat wave. I am feeling it right now, Chris. Yeah. I mean, across the world. But has it been hot and tense sleep? I know where you're going with this, <laughs> which is hilarious because this has become a hobby horse of ours to undermine tent sleep at all costs. But it's funny. Um, I just published this old article I wrote about personal grades oh, yeah. um, on Evening Sense. And um, it's something I wrote like, you know, 10 years ago, but I just re-upped it because um, I've been on vacation basically and I didn't want to write something new. And uh, anyway, someone reached out to me about that article and they were like, Oh, the thing that's driving me most nuts right now are people are upgrading personal grades because of heat. Oh, like really? Like sleep, yeah. So they're upgrading roots and they're taking a personal grade with like an upgraded root in sleep. Mm. All right. Uh, on 8A or wherever. Wow. So shit's getting harder. Shit's getting harder. Nice. I, I don't know. I've just, I've noticed the still same. Still sending. Yeah, still sending. I've just noticed <laughs> plenty of best day ever's. <laughs> in uh posts you know like oh, i just unsighted like 32 12 a's i've only ever done one before <laughs> this place is amazing <laughs> this place I love is it. amazing it's just my style yeah it's i so found my style <laughs> it's 900 degrees <laughs> but somehow still climb hard i don't get i don't get it i mean that was the point of my piece was it was like you know this is just silly. This is all just silly shit that yeah, you're yeah. just playing games with yourself if you, if you know, are trying to make it into this serious thing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of fun to look back on, you know, yourself 10 years earlier. But yeah. So I've been on vacation. You've been on vacation too, Chris. Yeah. I have been on vacation. We've been um, on vacation here yeah. at the run out. Yeah. We, uh, we both left town actually. I went to Portugal and then to Spain, mm-hmm. to Mallorca. On a family trip, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, it was it was kind of wild. It was fun. It was a it was uh it's epic. Um, I know we talk a lot about having kids and stuff on this podcast because we're old and grown up and stuff. And yeah, it's just a weird thing to go to these places. I mean, I'd never been to Portugal, but I've been to Spain in general, not not to Mallorca, but to uh, you know, Cornadea and those places. Um, you know, before kids. Yeah, and the uh, the difference be. BK. Yeah. The difference with AK is so intense and wild. And like, you know, if you really did the dirtbag thing too, which is a particular style, you know, in Europe or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. And just the amount of like, you just spend so much more money and it's not just because there's a third person there, you mm-hmm. know, your child in my case, cause I only have one. Um, but just everything has to be you know, just on a level that you never would have touched when you were just a dirtbag climber. So it's kind of so wild. Are you saying that it's harder to travel and climb with a child? Because <laughs> that's yes. a bold claim. I haven't heard that before. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. It's, okay. it's, it's harder and it's more expensive. And like I said, it's, it's interesting if you go to the same, like literally if you go to the same places that you went when you were just like a, a, a climber with 
the whole menagerie, like how, I mean, obviously it's striking here in rifle, but it's only for an afternoon. So we do a whole trip and, yeah. uh, it's just clay. I, I mean, I kind of glossed over it. I've, I've always like, oh yeah, you know, having a kid, it's like, yeah, I have less time to climb. It's different, but you know, I still get out there and do things, but then it, it like hits you right between the fucking eyes. Right. Like I, you know, whatever climbing I'm going to do on this trip is like, is like a sad, sad facsimile of of what i was after bk yeah i mean it's interesting because you're just like desperate to do anything you know right (laughs) well it's it's interesting to hear you say that um because when i look at instagram it seems like people with kids are only like thriving and sending and stuff (laughs) and the kids the 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 fact that they they mention like having children is a sort of like it's a like bonus. an upgrade. Yeah. yeah it's yeah, like a totally. person. It's yeah. a personal grade upgrade, yeah. basically. It's fucking It's like shit. I did this like 13D, but I have a kid here. And so it's really like 14A. We, we talk. <laughs> or out of the way around. I did yeah. this 14A, but because I had to watch my kid at the same time, it's I'm going to take 14C. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually funny because Insta- we know Instagram is this is this gauzy, glossed-over version of everyone's lives. Like, right. that's what it's famous for. And I think that it's like, it's probably the, that realm of it is the starkest, you know? Because, yeah, it's just like, I mean, because every, and we and we sort of know, because, you know, we know that, I mean, any anybody knows that, like, every third trip to the crag I mean that that's a good ratio is it results in a meltdown right. of some type that is like embarrassing for you annoys everybody around you you know but you just never see that end of it even though we all know as parents that's what happens and we know as as climbers because you've been there mm-hmm. and you've watched some kid fucking melt down while you're trying to send and been like Jesus dude get that kid out of here like <laughs> Yeah, totally. And, um, I was, so on my vacation, I was, there's a day where we were at a crag. Um, I was in climbing for a story. I can tell you the reason why in a bit, but, um, we were at this crag and, you know, my two daughters were there and I was just sitting around and then I I heard this like screaming and crying. And I was like, is that a shit? Is that one of my daughters? And then I looked around and I saw this like little baby just melting down and just screaming into um, his parents' uh, arms. And I was just like, thank God it's not my child. <laughs> I was like so relieved and happy yeah. to just witness this like pure misery on in this. <laughs> yeah, but your heart rate went up initially. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> you're just like, oh God, here we go. Yeah. That's, that's got to be mine. You know, we're a little bit past those like kind of huge meltdowns, and, right? You know, the baby phases, right? It's in some ways easier, in some ways harder, right? Um, and yeah, it's kind of kind of more of a fun. We were up in Squamish, and you know, escaping the escaping the cruel, uh, you know, ten sleep sending temps, as I call the summer, and went up to Canada where it was it was nice and cool, and. uh yeah, it was fun. You know, my daughters are like running around the forest and picking huckleberries and eating blueberries and finding slugs and stuff like that. So. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's the thing. It's like all that stuff is what matters. I'm just yeah. saying like if you have any of your own goals, can't afford an au pair, um, then, you know, you just got to like. And, and I know that. Like yeah. I know that. But it's still, 
you know, you're in Europe. I'm in Europe. I'm in Mallorca. I'm in like this this bed of right. storied legendary climbing. And so you wanted to like get after it. Well, no, I mean, 23 hours a day, I was like, and I was fine with it. Right. You know, and, and it's just like, you know, you just wanted an hour of, there like, was like a mo every month. So there was a moment of like, ah, yeah, like I'm here. It's right there. And, right. and it's angsty, but the logistics of, of all of it to get it to happen is also really tricky. You know, well, in certain types of climbing, I mean, in this case, it was deep water soloing. And so it's not ideal to have your kids just, uh, you know, hanging out on a ledge right. where there's waves lapping below them or whatever, you know, <laughs> like it's not, I, there were, there are places that it works, um, which I went to because there's a beach or whatever, but, um, it's yeah, still your child to just get washed out by a rogue wave while yeah, you're exactly. sending the yeah, nar. So, so, um, yeah. So, I mean, it's just, you know, it's like you, you, you can like, you can paint a, a picture of it and believe that picture of it. You said your girls running around, you know, doing all their thing, mm -hmm. and and believe it and 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 revel in it. But there's still you're still a climber. You still had this life before that you remember. Yep. When you just did whatever fuck you wanted to. Yep. And so yeah, it comes back to you in the middle of the night or whatever. <laughs> I mean, it's like, don't play any games. Like, if you're going to have kids, like, your fucking climbing's taking a hit. Don't. But it seems like some people that, for whom that isn't the case, um, which is interesting. And so I, you know. True. I will say that, you know, every kid is different. Right. And they're, I mean, the, I see, kid, you know, f dear friends of mine who have, like, little unicorn babies that just sleep at the crag and allows them to you know, climb for a few hours and get like a good, good session. And that was never a reality for us. No, no, no. Once. So uh, it's still not for me. Yeah. You're, you're like phasing into it. I, I still, it's still a little, a little bit tricky for yeah. us though. Yeah, yeah. So it's just, every kid is different. You know, that's the other thing. But tell me about, uh, deep water soling. Cause is that the first time you've done that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It was, it was, uh, yeah, it was, uh, an experience that I hadn't had before. And, um, I wasn't sure how I would react to it. You know, as I've grown older, uh, I've remarked a lot on how I'm not as bold as I once was and, you know, hucking yourself off of cliffs into water from 18 meters up is, you know, feels like a young person's game. It's like taking up skateboarding when you're 40. Right. Right. Yeah. It, and yet we have, you know, we have Chris as our, as our champion. He's 40 now. So yeah, still getting after, but no, I mean. To get into it, but I was, it was intriguing. I was really excited to try it. And I mean, I was there at a terrible time of year, July during a historic heat wave. Yeah. Um, that was brutal. Um, but I was excited about it. And, uh, yeah, I was, I was, I definitely got hooked. Even the few, you know, we, we went out three days, one time without miles. So we had a kind of a longer day doing it. The other times with him. So we were kind of swapping off and, doing a couple pitches but right. uh yeah it was cool nice were you scared um yeah yeah i mean it's interesting i was sort of more i wasn't i was more nervous than scared yeah if that makes any sense like i would i would have more flutters and at the beginning of the route mm. of like anticipation of how i was gonna be right um but i mean i didn't climb very high i think uh, like there was a 12 meter route that i did yeah 12, 13 meters, something like that. Not, I didn't ever like get too gripped. Right. But I also didn't try very hard. It seemed like you found the one crack 
Deepwater solo crack in the world. I did find a Deepwater solo crack. I was brought to it. Yeah. Not by anyone who knew that it would appeal to me. Yeah. It was just random. This We were out on a boat with a guy and he's like, yeah, there's just this over here. And yeah, so I, I mean, literally a hand, a jam crack yeah, like in, in limestone. Um, <laughs> so that, that was pretty interesting too, because this guy, it was like, he didn't know us from anybody else. And so. He he actually was advising me not to like stick my feet and my hands in the crack too much because he <laughs> thought like I would get stuck and then I would like fly over backwards or whatever. Um, is that is that because he didn't he wasn't a climber he didn't understand no crack no he's a climber technique. but I think he just didn't yeah no he actually done he he had done the climbing he had fallen off the top of it he said okay um but no he knew about climbing he had, he had actually was a quite a good climber. Not at this moment, but in, in previous years. But he just years. didn't know about crack climbing. And also me. Like, he didn't... Oh, he didn't tr- He didn't know that you were a good cl- crack climber. Yeah, or a good climber at all. Like, right. you know, we hired him to take us out there. He right. doesn't know. I mean, he's probably used to, like, Danish tourist dudes, like... Jared Leto just <laughs> peeling off the top of... I'm sure... Yeah, so... <laughs> so anyway, he was, like, spitting bait at me the whole time. And my buddy who was on the boat with him was like, yeah, he got pretty nervous when he got to the top because he's like, oh God, I got this like, you know, client that I'm gonna have to fish out of the water and like, you know, put his shoulder back in or something. Yeah. So the liability um, laws are different yeah, in Spain. Exactly. So, um, but no, I sent it. It was fine. And, uh, I mean, it was, you know, there was a move at the top. It was a little nervy, but only cause I had to step out of the crack. But yeah, I just like, I locked into that crack, like. No, like no Spaniard has ever done, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> so I noticed a goby on your hand. Yeah, I totally know. My, I'm gonna blame it on the ocean. Yeah, but um, but also like in my older age, like my my jam, my skin's become quite. You'd think it was all just scar tissue and a super bomber, but it's become pretty weak, actually, like paper thin. Well, it's probably you know you're hanging by the Mediterranean in 90 degree weather. Yeah, it was for not. A week cool that's yeah. for sure so and that was kind of like the whole thing i was thinking about like because i'm really against cold water and i don't like i'm not a water person mm-hmm. i mean i can swim and i don't mind it and but even like a i mean water even in like like 80 degree water is bothersome for me yeah and so i was kind of psyched to go at this time of year because i was like I'm going to be fine. It's hot. I'll be happy, like falling into the water, but that all like, and that's the interesting thing is all those concerns like fell by the wayside when I started climbing and I was like, no, this is about the climbing. And so I understood why people go there in September right, or whenever. Yeah. September is a good time of year to go. But like, you know, the climb, the, the show, all those people looked really cold. They must've been there in the winter. I think. Yeah. They looked really cold and everybody on the boat had like, jackets on and right, stuff yeah, yeah. <laughs> so but but i i realize how like the th- the the excitement of climbing hard would be a draw enough for me to go back even when i was worried about the cold water right because that was the thing it's like it was it was terrible condition yeah like so gross at times like just smarmy and yeah moist holds and like everything just felt like you were gonna just zing off of it and it's hard to like bear down and try hard when yeah. you're presented with that kind of like feeling. Were you climbing um, on sunny cliffs? We tried everything. Okay. But like, you know, even if the sun was on the cliff, a lot of times like the, the, the inside the cave, it was all gross. Right. So, 
Um, but yeah, I realized too that that, that it's sort of the opposite of like you actually want to go climb on the sunny cliffs mm-hmm. to have them be yeah. dry, which is you know that would be like if someone told me right now in Colorado, like, <laughs> let's go climb in the sun. I'd be like, you are insane. <laughs> so to have that shift in my head. Yeah. I learned a lot actually about it. And, um, you know, I felt like you have to go, if you really want to get into it, you have to go and get probably some sort of baptism where you're climbing hard, somewhat upside down mm-hmm. and have an uncontrolled fall right. from, from a significant height and either survive it and have it be no big deal or which means you'll be like, Oh, I'm into this or like get worked. And there was plenty of stories going around yeah, about, you know, people dislocating their shoulders and yep, like then try and happen to try to swim with a dislocated shoulder and stuff yeah. like that. So yeah, people can really fuck. I've, I've really injured myself deep water soloing in the past. And I've, how many times have you been? Uh, I've been on a few different trips, um, to Majorca, right. to Venezuela, I hurt myself badly in Venezuela. Um, well, that's a great place to hurt yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Socialized <laughs> medicine, baby. <laughs> yeah. What'd you do? What do you mean you hurt yourself? I, I, I mean, I jumped off of a 80, 75 foot cliff really? and, and into flat water and didn't stick the landing. Oh. And it was really painful. I mean, we, after like successfully like doing a, you know, a twelve A or whatever right. up, up up the whole thing. It was like I was feeling so psyched and proud of, of myself for getting to the top and then it was like instantly ruined oh. by jumping off. Um but yeah, I I mean I would suggest if people are interested, hopefully they're not listening to this podcast to learn deep water solo tips, but if they are, I would suggest jumping off of cliffs, like spending a day just, you know, building up how to control your body in the air right? and just control jumping off the top because you learn a lot. Well, the first thing I learned is you don't jump off, you step off. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. If you jump, you, you sort of put your body into some sort of trajectory that goes out. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. So, I mean, I, I didn't hurt myself, but I learned right away, like you step off mm-hmm. and let yourself drop. Right. It, Cause it's the same with climbing. If you're practicing falling and you're jumping off, you're going to fuck yourself up. Because that's not how you fall. Yeah, don't push off the wall. Right. Yeah, and yeah. so, yeah, that was something I learned right away. And, and I mean, I started to think about it all. And I just didn't, I just got this little taste. And who knows if and when I'll be ever, ever be able to go back, like on a proper climbing trip. But it is cool. And, and it is special. Yeah. And it's also like, I realize that it, you know, we joke about like the purest forms of climbing. Um, you know, top roping, obviously, being the purest form of climbing. But it gets there. You know, it is you and, you know, you ha- you have your little kit because you have to do the chalk bag thing. Right. Where you have to like, you know, have your chalk bag and I cut the liner out. I did the whole thing and like, but other than that, there's really not much else to it except for your shoes and your chalk bag. Yeah. You know, even more so than bouldering because, you know, everybody lugs giant multiple pads around and stuff and fans and things. Right. But like you're up there. Yeah. It's, it hits you pretty hard that it's like you're up there doing it just you and 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 your and and uh your climbing shoes and your chalk bag or not your chalk bag i did a bunch of stuff without a chalk bag yeah um so it's pretty cool and i was also psyched and i kind of knew this from half being forced to climb in the rain on multi-pitch routes is that climbing shoes work pretty good wet they do yeah yeah it's not that big a deal yeah yeah it's not what you're worried about 
No, definitely not. I mean, Mayork is like a cool place because it's so featured and there's lots of like positive and cut holds mm-hmm. everywhere for feet and hands. Um, and yeah, like you're saying, they're often smarmy and wet and stuff, but you kind of learn, you kind of learn to push the limits of, of that discomfort. Right. Um, you're like, okay, this is a wet hold, but I'm not, I'm just going to trust that I'm not going to fall because right. it's like so big or. Yeah. Yeah. I think I felt enough. like that. I felt like there was all these things that I had to like push through. Right. But I just didn't get enough like mileage to do so. Yeah. Yeah. I think it looks cool. I think it looks like not that you could do it while you're really old, but it feels like, it. you know, I got a, I got a decade left to go and, and really explore it at, at least. Yeah. Because I, I mean, mean, you don't have to climb super high. I mean, we did one day that was felt more like deep water bouldering, but yeah, just to kind of, I don't know. I think, I think there's a big mental game in it that seems really intriguing too. Yeah. I mean, it's literally the only place you can like experiment with like pushing yourself as a free soloist and and not suffer the, the immense consequences of that. (laughs) Exactly. Um, I mean, maybe you'll get a, you know, stiff neck <laughs> if you fall bad for a few days, but you're not going to die or you probably won't die. Yeah. I mean, it puts you in that headspace and it kind of makes you appreciate like, you know, something, someone like Alex Honnold, you know, who, who does that kind of stuff 3000 feet up the wall, up, up El Cap. Yeah. And I've realized too, that it feels like the, the, the people who are climbing like hard and at their limit, high off the water there um it's not very many people no there's an additional like we were saying there's just this additional skill set of having to know how to fall and how to stick landings and not hurt yourself and once you learn those skills then you can start to push your comfort zone and try harder and harder things but i think the mistake i made and i think a lot of people make is that you can you can definitely climb on harder stuff and not know how to really fall and get yourself into a situation where you might hurt yourself. It's a little bit self-selecting too, because I think, I mean, Steph was, she, she sort of dabbled while we were there as well, mm-hmm. but she was like, yeah, it's, it's like this added stress that I don't want. It's not free soloing. And that's very selective as to who gets into free soloing. Right. We talked about that a lot. It's, it's only a few people and it's not quite that level, but it's, it still has its, it's, I mean, yeah, it's still stressful. scary enough. Yeah, no, you do like two yeah. routes and you're like, I'm good for the day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're like, I need to like, my, adre- my adrenal system right. needs to chill out. And- yeah. And, and not everybody like looks for that in climbing. Right. In fact, most people don't. Yeah. And I was curious about how I would react to it. First time I went to Majorca, um, we didn't go deep water soloing because it was like barely even a thing at that point. Right. Um, But the one memory I have of that trip is that I was trying what was for me and my friends was like a hard route, you know, for our group, it was probably, you know, 11 a or 10 plus or something like that. And, um, I was trying to do the crux and I was like trying really hard. And as I was trying really hard, I like farted (laughs) and there was like a group of like three stone cold faced Germans who were watching me try this fruit and waiting to get on it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they'd been like stone cold face the whole time like 
typical Germanic expressions. Right. And they just bust out laughing, like started dying laughing. And it was like the best moment. Like it was like, <laughs> it was one of these like first kind of experiences where I, I recall feeling like there was this, you know, common cross-cultural language of rock climbing that could, you know, bring people together, even if they didn't speak the same language right. and stuff. Or a cross-cultural language of farts yeah exactly (laughs) right i mean poop jokes the first joke the first ever joke like the first caveman joke was certainly either a fart or a poop totally yeah yeah 100 yeah i mean show me a a human uh civil population or group that doesn't think farts are funny and that's a place i will never i will never ever go Colin Haley is a professional alpine climber, perhaps best known for pulling off audacious and bold solos of hard routes in Alaska and Patagonia. Colin, you are at the cutting edge of alpine climbing and mountaineering, and you've kind of been there for quite a while now. And it's a, it's a career that it's short for, uh, you know, too many people. A lot of people die doing what you do. And a lot of people kind of grow tired of the risk too, and kind of go into different avenues, but you seem to have like a healthy balance on all of that stuff. So I don't know if you would agree with that assessment, or maybe you could give me What's your secret, I guess, to, to, you know, going into the mountains year after year and trying to, trying to do these solos and these big things that just kind of seem heinous from, from a removed perspective? Yeah, actually, I think that what you said is pretty on the mark there. I think that there is something that I do a little bit differently than some of the people who have had like more brief careers in high level alpine climbing. And I think that the most simple way to say it is just that I am a little bit more conservative and I'm basically never going balls to the wall on any of my climbing objectives. I'm always holding back a little bit, making decisions a little bit more conservatively in all sorts of different aspects. And I think that that makes for a longer career for two reasons. One is that if you are kind of pushing more and like climbing closer to your kind of safety margin all the time, obviously it can end in tragedy as has happened to like so many of my peers. But even for people who don't end up having an accident like that, I think that when people are really pushing and taking big risks, they often burn out quickly because of course it's super psychologically stressful to having these experiences that feel like close to disaster all the time and i feel like i have seen a number of climbers either my age or a little bit younger who have kind of like appeared on the scene and done a few like pretty rad climbs for a few years and then kind of dropped off the map, whether it was because of an accident or just because they burned out. And I think in either case, it's usually because they kind of like 
came out, you know, guns blazing and just went crazy for a few years, but it's not really sustainable in the obvious like safety factor, but also psychologically sustainable. Yeah, it's sort of fascinating to hear you say that, you know, again, as looking at your career and, you know, we start talking about soloing some of these big roots, which has been, you know, many of the most audacious things that you've done. Someone like ourselves, really, I mean, or, or even someone with less knowledge of it would kind of be like, what is he talking about that he's conservative? You know, I have a kind of a two, two-sided question and you can do one or both or neither, but, um, you know, first of all, like when you talk about being conservative, but then we look at these, you know, solos or whatever, um, or these, these ascents that kind of break the mold. Can you give us a little bit of an example of how you consider something like that or what parts of it you considered where you were like, I'm actually taking it easy, even though everybody from the outside looking in is like, you're nuts, bro. So yeah, you know, maybe I, explain the process a little bit in terms of one of those ascents. You could be specific or. I mean, I think that in general, it's very hard from the outside to kind of see how much risk a given climber is taking. And it's really hard for anyone to truly know the answer other than that climber, him or herself. And what I'm saying there is very obvious in free soloing, where maybe you can tell if someone looks more solid or looks more shaky a little bit. But, you know, it's like free rider is a route that a bunch of people have free climbed even in a day. So theoretically, a whole bunch of people could free solo it. But would they be taking way more risk than Alex did? Probably. But sometimes it's hard to tell from the outside, you know. And um, I guess it's just that um, with every little aspect of a climb, you're making a ton of decisions. And for myself, I'm not an elite rock climber by any means, especially by today's standards. But, you know, I've, I've red pointed at least one 14A sport climb. But for reference, it's super rare that I free solo harder than like 5.8. You know, even though 10D is pretty darn easy for me. It's just, there's all these things that you do in climbing that are like kind of balancing the difficulty and the risks that you're taking, even when you're climbing roped up, it's like, how much pro are you placing? And I've seen in lots of scenarios where I'm climbing with someone who's maybe of a similar physical ability, but I put in more gear. But I mean, in terms of coming up with specific examples from a climb, I mean, I can try, like, for instance, the climb that Andrew was referencing a bit ago, uh, doing a winter solo on Chalten Fitzroy last year. I mean, for one thing, I made an attempt where I got already, let's see, in feet, something like 4,000 vertical feet up the route, which is quite a ways. I had already done a bunch of tricky climbing and I turned around with sunny skies without, you know, being in terrain that I couldn't continue on just because I knew that the forecast was for the weather to get pretty bad around midnight that night. And I was just looking at my watch and I was like, it's not enough of a safety margin in terms of time. And yeah, I don't know. It's like every, on that successful ascent, maybe a week and a half or two weeks later, 
there are tons of places where I could have easily just free soloed, but I chose instead to make some back loops and things. I guess it's not that easy to come up with really obvious examples of like, oh, you know, I did it in a slightly more safe manner because of X, Y, Z. Right, right. It's kind of every little decision you're making and every little decision everyone makes when they're climbing. It doesn't have to be serious alpine climbing, even when you just go and climb free blast, you know, it's like where you run it out relative to how solid you feel. It's like everyone is making these calculus, these decisions all the time. The other part of my question actually fits right in here is, you know, I always wonder about the, it's not really the psychology, but the mindset of, um, again, let's say this Fitzroy solo, how you're sort of monitoring yourself. Um, you know, does that play into that? And it's a little bit of a tricky question, but you know, you're such a, it's interesting because you're, you come across like very calculated, very calm. I've never seen you as like one of these, like, woohoo, kind of like, or like Mark Twight, like I'm out here to, you know, to find my inner, you know, the inner blackness of my soul and like, you know, tread the edge. And if I die, I don't care. Like you're not that guy. Right. Um, And even all the pictures you usually take of yourself, you know, you always have this like look on your face, like I am not on the summit, like woohooing. I'm like on the summit, like thinking about the descent already kind of guy. So, so do you have a game you play psychologically when you're out there on the edge that far and, and making sure you're not like pushing past where you're comfortable? I definitely don't have like any sort of specific protocol, Mm -hmm. but I would say that I have a long history with doing kind of harder Alpine solos and this kind of, I don't know, psychological roller coaster of going out into these really intense experiences and often in the moment being like, this is super stressful. Like, I should probably stop doing this. This feels, you know, a little bit too much. And then once you're like back down on flat ground, being like, ah, that was, that was cool, you know? Uh, <laughs> and, you know, my last, that trip that, you know, we referenced of soloing Chalten in winter, the first time I went up, that was also a big thing is I, I bailed in part because I was, I just felt like a little bit too stressed out by the whole experience and then when I came back a week and a half later, I felt way more confident. I definitely don't have any sort of protocol. And you're absolutely right. I'm not like the woohoo guy, not because I have anything against it. It's just not my personality. But, I, it, you know, it would be misleading to say that I'm always like totally calm. I, I never like um, kind of freak out in the mountains. I've, in my whole life, I've never been like, ah, oh, what do we do? I've always been like, okay, here's the situation. Like, what do we need to do right now? So I am calm in that regard. But for sure in on hard solos and depending on the situation, climbing with partners as well, I do get super stressed out. But I think that that's actually kind of related to what I'm saying about being a little bit more of a conservative climber mm-hmm. because getting stressed out is in a way like how you deal with realizing that things are risky and thinking about, Oh, how do I mitigate these risks and how do I go about this? And it's like that feeling of being really stressed out that forces you to say, okay, I need to do this right now. What, what's your tell? 
What are your, what's your tell? Like, um, I, when I'm stressed out, I've realized that I whistle a little bit. Like I'll be at the belay, like, <laughs> like, and that's it. And like, my partner should know that like, if I'm whistling, like I, and it's like this, like, it's like this thing where I'm like pretending everything's like dandy, you know, like we're just having a good time, but it's actually me like starting to get worried or like, anyway, do you get, do you yeah, have a tell? Like I does one of your eyes start to twitch? <laughs> I don't think I at least have anything I'm aware of like that. Okay. We should ask your partners. Lower <laughs> level. I do remember like maybe 15 years ago, I was on like a two week climbing trip with Nellie Milfeld, who probably mm -hmm. both of you guys know. Oh, yeah. I hadn't realized, but she pointed out that whenever I was, this was just like a cragging, mostly a cragging trip, but whenever I was starting up a pitch that would be difficult for me, I would be like chalk up and I'd be like, all righty. And she pointed out that every time I would start up a pitch that I was like getting psyched up for, I would say, all righty. That's like, so funny because that's, I say, all right then <laughs> when I start up pitches. So anyway, uh, that's, that's good. That's a good one. She, that's what I mean. We'd have to ask your partners be like, oh yeah, he starts to like, you know, I don't know. He gets really quiet. <laughs> yeah. I think in the like actual serious stuff, I, I don't think there's anything. Okay. Actually, if anything, I might get less talkative because i'm just really focused right. on like the task at hand and kind of more stressed out also the warning here to all your partners who are listening to that if if you if colin ever does like completely flip out you guys are in serious trouble <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so um what i was just thinking as you were talking colin was this the role of intuition and what that how that plays and factors into this decision-making calculus that you're describing, because it seems to me that we have this illusion of trying to be these rational actors in these chaotic spaces. And we hem and haw and go from, you know, decision A to decision B and back and forth. And ultimately we land on one or the other. And it feels like there's this choice that is born of the rational process, but it also see you're also kind of hinting at the fact that some of these big decisions, like I don't think I can make it to the top. You know, it's getting a little late. Like th these are intuitions that you have. I imagine are born of experience. But I'd love to just hear you riff on what you think the role of intuition is in uh, during during these climbs. I think that the intuition that one has in terms of decision making completely well is extremely affected by one's psychology in that moment. Like you're saying, it, it even if you are trying your hardest to be 100% rational and logical about all this stuff, all of your decisions and all of your evaluations of various risks are for sure, you know, seen through the light of your feelings at that moment. And I think that the same person in the exact same scenario might make completely opposite decisions based on their psychology at that moment. And I think that's, it would be uh, not dishonest, but yeah, fooling oneself to think otherwise. But in terms of like intuitive decision-making, I really think it's just experience. And I do think that that is one thing that I have a lot of. People maybe know me for certain climbs that make it in the news, but you know, before I was ever in any kind of climbing news, I had climbed hundreds of summits in the Cascades. And I think that there's basically no 
equivalent for a large amount of experience. There's nothing that prepares you as well in all sorts of different aspects. And I do think that I would actually say that some climbers who I see, I feel like they make the mistake of trying to shortcut experience. Like, especially I've seen climbers who are very strong technical climbers from a sport climbing or bouldering background or something. And then they decide that they get into alpine climbing and it's their new thing and it's their new part of their climbing career. And because they've already been a very high level climber in one discipline, they kind of just assume like, okay, now I'm going to just immediately do high level climbing in the mountains. And even if they kind of can, because they have the high technical climbing level and they might be really fit as well, taking a shortcut and not doing those hundreds of like classic easier alpine routes beforehand, I think has a big effect on kind of how prepared you are when things don't go to plan and and how good your intuitive decision-making is. You, another thing that I was thinking about was this article I read kind of in the aftermath of your uh, winter solo of down in Shelton. And you, it seemed as uh, after that first attempt, you kind of were ready to write off soloing in the mountains in general. You kind of you're like this. This is getting too much for me. This is too dangerous. There's there's a couple of things there. One, maybe just tell us about what it was going through your head at that time. But also, you know, the we're talking about these kind of rational decision making processes, and it certainly seems the height of irrationality to write off soloing in the mountains and then one week later return. You know, your memory yeah. kind of deceives you to to and convinces you that it's it wasn't actually that bad and that you're capable of doing this. So I'd love to just hear your thoughts on any of that. Did you say the height of rationality or irrationality? Irrationality. <laughs> okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I mean, it would be hard to argue it any other way. And the truth is that climbing mountains in general, especially difficult objectives is already the height of irrationality. Yeah, I have several times been on like a hard solo objective and felt, you know, stressed out enough that my feeling at that moment was I should stop doing this. This will be the last one. It's just a little bit too much. And then, you know, shortly after returning back to flat ground and civilization where life is safe and easy, completely changing my mind and saying, oh, actually, that was really cool. I want to try something else like that or I want to go back and try again. And I don't really have any explanation, really, because it is totally irrational. I guess maybe it's just that yeah, when you are back in a totally safe environment, it's easy to get psyched to go into the unsafe environment. And, you know, I think that that's part of the appeal of alpine climbing in general is that I've always felt like, you know, because modern life, even though not that not to imply that life is easy, but even though from an actual safety perspective, modern life is so easy and safe, you know, it is hard to live the life you want to live, but it's easy to survive. And um, I think that alpine climbing and especially like more difficult alpine climbing puts you in these experiences of 
feeling like, oh, you, you're going to have to work to survive and you are scared and you are like in this intense kind of epic feeling situation. And I think that it provides something, I don't know, in some sort of like primal part of your psychology that modern life doesn't provide. At least that's always been my feeling. And I think kind of related to that, when people are choosing different sorts of climbing styles, you know, there's a billion different ways to approach climbing in general. And even there's a billion different ways to approach hard alpine climbing in terms of what people um, prioritize in terms of climbing style. And in general, the way that I like to prioritize climbing objectives and climbing styles is I, I want the experience to feel like an epic quest, not like a game. And um, I think that ties in a little bit to this concept of like being out there where it feels scary and stressful and epic and coming back down to the lowlands where life feels relatively safe. And whenever you're in one of those two worlds, you long a little bit for the other one. Sorry, that was a very rambling. No, that was great. No, no, that was uh, awesome. I loved it. Yeah. (laughs) I love I the. Like, I he love played D and D when he was a kid. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's true or not. <laughs> I never did, but oh, <laughs> you should have. You'd have been great at it. <laughs> um, one th- question I think probably a lot of listeners will have, and I certainly have, is when you know when we're talking about like something like soloing Fitzroy or any of these big mountains just give us a sense of like what that actually means for you. I mean, you're using ropes, you're using these kind of tactics that you don't learn from freedom of the Hills. And so tell us kind of what it looks like. What are the dirty little secrets you're using to, to, you know, get up and down these things alone? Sure. Yeah. And I mean, I'll say first of all, that it, it totally depends on the objective and what sort of tactics I'll use on a soloing objective. That's difficult for me completely depends on the type of objective and the type of terrain. But for like two examples, in the last year, I'd say that the two best climbs I've done have both been solo ascents on Chalten on Fitzroy. And one was a winter solo of the Super Canaletta that we were already talking about. And the other was a summer solo of the North Pillar, the Casaroto or Goretta. And For me, they both felt like similar accomplishments, but very different style in that the North Pillar solo, I basically rope soloed 95% of it. And so that's the tactics that people are more familiar with, where climb a pitch, self-belaying with a device such as a Grigri, you get to the top of the pitch, build an anchor, rappel back down the pitch and then either climb back up or in my case, Jumar back up because I had a huge pack full of baby gear. And so that type of soloing, you're just inching your way up and it's psychologically not that stressful because you are almost always connected to the mountain in like not a super dissimilar way as you would be with a partner but it's extremely slow and labor intensive and everything. And something like soloing the Super Canaletta in winter was very different in that I was free soloing about 95% of the route. And then on the other bits where I wasn't free soloing, I was using kind of hybrid techniques that 
are drastically less safe than self-belaying, which is already less safe than a real belay with a partner, but a little bit safer than just being completely unattached to the mountain. And it, it totally depends on the terrain because um, where I use these kind of makeshift tactics, it's on terrain where I could almost just keep going free soloing. It is pretty easy for me, but it's just hard enough that I'm like, no, nah, I, I think I should be connected somehow. And so the two tactics I was using on the winter solo of the Super Canaletta were one that's called back looping, or at least that's the term that's normally used in Yosemite. And the other people call daisy soloing or tentacle soloing. And daisy soloing or tentacle soloing is basically just when you are in a short section of more difficult terrain where you're not comfortable free soloing, basically placing two or three uh, usually cams, but it doesn't necessarily have to be pieces of pro just in a couple meters of terrain and clipping yourself into them with a sling or a daisy chain or something just so that if you fall on that one or two or three moves that you'll probably get caught by that piece. And, you know, hopefully most people listening immediately understand that that's not actually very safe for a number <laughs> of reasons. Like, your quote unquote belay is uh, nearly totally static. There's no force absorption. You know, daisy chains are not made to take forces like that, et cetera, et cetera. It's not really that safe. But if you were to fall on that one move, your chance of survival being clipped to a cam with a daisy chain is, of course, massively higher than if you're just free soloing. So that's one of the makeshift techniques. And the other is back looping, which is essentially a rappel in reverse. So it's like, say you have a 20 meter section that seems a little bit too hard to free solo, but you still think would be pretty easy for you. Then at the base of that 20 meter section, you make pretty good anchor and then you clip your rope into it and you anchor your rope, say at the middle mark, if you say you have a 60 meter rope, and then I tie into both ends of the rope. And then I use clove hitches to make a couple shorter connections to that anchor on the middle mark of the rope. And then basically, as you climb up that section, I take off those clove hitches to give myself the slack I need and maybe place one or two intermediate pieces of protection, maybe. And then when you get to the top of that 20 meter section, you untie from one end and you pull, you drop it down and you pull up on the other end of the rope. And so essentially you retrieve your rope by making this kind of inverse repel. And, um, and then you're able to just keep climbing up immediately without having to repel back down and Jumar or climb back up. So it, is also really not very safe. And because most of the time, if you're doing a back loop, you're not even clipping intermediate pieces of protection. So if you fall, you're taking a factor two fall onto the anchor, which most people know is really not a good idea. <laughs> but again, it's a lot safer than not being clipped to anything, assuming you're still climbing with the same level of care. I think about it as a rope soloer myself because um, having soloed eight climbs, which is um, very, very different than that. But, um, but yeah, this idea of 
Right, doing something that again, anybody looking at it be like, yeah, that's still really dangerous. But you're like, yeah, but it's better than than free soloing. But it's only like this very remote backup to what I've always told told people is like, you know, what's your first defense against hitting the ground? And I was I've always said, well, it's your climbing ability. Yeah, like, absolutely. It's not your rope and it's not your anchors. It's whether or not you fall off. And if you can control that end of things, then then you're going to be fine you know if you never fall off it doesn't matter whether you had a quad or a you know this type of anchor or anything else Um, right yeah i think that's where these these techniques just to kind of build on what you're saying about them being in fact like really sketchy also is that they're just a a remote backup to the idea that i'm probably and i'm uh, my experience tells me i'm not going to fall off but if i do maybe i'll be dangling at an end of a rope you know 200 feet below and and actually be able to go on living you know right yeah yeah i you know pete whitaker who's done a bunch of impressive rope soloing all over but especially in yosemite you know i think one of the things he says is like my first line of safety is to not fall even though he's doing Mm -hmm. stuff like free rider and free climbing it rope solo i think he's climbing in a different like way than he would be if he were just on a normal belay so so what's your kind of relationship with promotion, uh, the media, um, what people notice, what people don't notice. Um, you're a sponsored athlete, so you have some level of, you know, if not need, it's, it's sort of in your job description to be a little bit in the news or, or to, be, to be a face that we notice climbing. Uh-huh. So um, that's a broad way to ask, like, what is, your, what is your relationship with sort of media and how people notice or come to find out about your sense and what you report or keep quiet about and things like that? I mean, it's, yeah, it's a big question and it's a big subject in general. I think that, you know, there's a spectrum and on one end of the spectrum, you have people who basically are tight-lipped about everything and barely will like tell their friends what they did last weekend. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have people who are like the ultimate self-promoters and report any tiny little thing they do as if it's, you know, the next West face of Gasherbrum four or something like that. And I don't know, everyone is somewhere on that spectrum. And, um, I think, you know, all of us like recognition and like attention, especially from our peers, especially from people we respect. And, yeah, I I know for sure that I could get more attention for my climbs if I went about reporting them in different ways, if I put more effort into working with professional photographers and videographers and stuff like that. But everything in life is a balance. And um, I think, like, ultimately, what, even though you know, I'm not above human psychology. Of course, I also appreciate attention and recognition as much as a lot of other people do. But I definitely make my climbing goals the priority. And I think often people try to a degree to get the recognition to coordinate with the photographers and videographers, that it ends up being a little bit detrimental to their actual climbing achievements. And that's less the case in, in maybe other types of climbing, but certainly in 
alpine climbing, it's very hard to, uh, you know, bring a photographer on your trip if you're trying to do like a cutting edge climb in alpine style. It like almost, you could almost say it just doesn't work. And just coordination. It's like, oh, you're planning a expedition to the Karakoram. If it's just you and your partner, it's like, okay, we'll leave on this date. We'll come back when we're done. And suddenly, if you start, you know, adding in photographers and things that everything gets more complicated, you know. So I think there's a balance of staying focused just on your climbing objectives. And then also in, I don't know, reporting things. I guess I I have nothing against people reporting things ever, even if it's not that significant. All I really care about is that people are totally honest and transparent with what they do, you know? So in other words, I'm sure we've all heard about people spraying and people griping about how much people spray. And in my opinion, it doesn't really matter whether or not someone is a sprayer, as long as all their spray is honest and accurate. But You don't, uh, you don't think people who spray are just kind of annoying? <laughs> well, that, that certainly could, can be the case, but I think, Usually I'm annoyed because usually the people who spray a lot are also not really presenting things in an honest way. Mm. Um, but putting a, putting a top spin on there. Uh, yeah. Their I'm trying to think, I'm sure there are examples of people who quote unquote spray a lot, but everything they spray is like super honest and not like trying to make it sound more rad than it is or something. I'm not, off the top of my head thinking of who that might be. You know, it, it might be someone like Pete Whitaker. Actually. He's always putting stuff on YouTube and whatnot. You know, he is quote unquote spraying a lot, but he's never like trying to make himself sound more rad than he is. He's never like making his accomplishments try to sound more cutting edge than they are. If anything, he's like very humble in his description of what he does, but he is like, you know, constantly making little videos and stuff. So that could be an example of someone who is quote unquote spraying a lot, but is very legit. I think that's the uh, British thing more than any individual. I, I just find the <laughs> entire British climbing community to, to kind of be both badass and also self-effacing and have some, you know, yeah. self-deprecating. Um, I'm yeah, sure there's definitely some truth to that. Yeah. I think that the whole concept of like, oh, the most honorable thing is just to go be rad and not tell anyone. I kind of find that to be a little bit bogus as well. Oh, it's always been bogus. Okay. Yeah. 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 No, that, that it's sort of like, that's always been the, the tension of uh -huh, like, right. it, it's, it's definitely always been bogus because you always, yeah, it's so it's funny, but we still kind of like cling to this idea yeah, of the, like, the lone, you know, the lone man against the mountain or whatever uh -huh. um you know like kind of thing. sometimes you hear people say like oh well i bet that so and so probably like did that 20 years ago and didn't tell anyone and it's like well who knows like you know it's like how can you like at one at one moment say like oh he so and so definitely did that when so and so supposedly never told anyone what he did you know it's like yeah <laughs> i think that like either end of this spectrum it gets a little bit bogus and the idea is just, I mean, I think the idea is just to be honest. And Sure. You know. Yeah, I've been in that conversation, too, of someone's like, well, somebody probably just went in there and did that then before that. And I'm like, I don't think you could kind of even do, like, 
It was actually in a reference to climbing all the Bridger Jacks in in Indian Creek um, uh-huh. in a day, you know, um, right. which in a in a kind of weird way, me and a partner were sort of the first ones. If you play the game a certain way to do that, and that was somebody's thing was like, yeah, some Euro probably just came in and did that like way before you guys ever did it, and I'm like. I don't know if you could kind of just like walk into the Indian Creek scene and do something like that unnoticed. And then, you know, but like that was my same thing, I guess. I mean, I guess, you know, some one of the Mormon like explorers, maybe he did it, you know, like we have no idea at some point, like, right. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, yeah. But you, you got to play this game in this world of like, well, what do we know? Yeah. And then the rest of the evidence would imply this, you know, right. Like yeah. maybe someone free sold the free rider before it could have uh, happened. Yeah, you know, some badass was, and he was just so badass that he didn't tell anyone. <laughs> yeah. Right. He's so but, badass. Yeah. He didn't exist. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow. All right. Well, we, we can move on from this kerfuffle that I've created. That's kind of pointless unless you have a last point to make. No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> well, Colin, one of, uh, you know, we're talking about successes and stuff, but I think one of the impetuses for having you on the show is you just got a, you're, you just came back from Alaska where you had a underwhelming trip. I thought that was interesting because it's sort of a side of alpine climbing that's rarely spoken about, I guess. Just, Even though it's a big part of it. It's a huge part of it. Yeah. You go, you know, you spend all this money, you go to a far flung place and you sit in a tent basically for six weeks or what I'm, I'm not, I'm, it sounds like you did some climbing as well, but less than what you had hoped for. So tell us about this huge aspect of Alpine climbing in general that, that we don't talk about much. Yeah. I mean, I think that if you are attempting things that aren't necessarily extremely challenging for you, then it's pretty easy to come home from any expedition with successes, you know, having gotten up climbs. But if you are trying things that are really challenging, it's kind of standard in alpine climbing that, you know, roughly half your expeditions are quote unquote failures, you know, that you fail to climb your objective that you went there to try. And, you know, that's just part of it because by definition, if these things are really big challenges, then all these factors have to come together to pull it off. You know, you have to be in really good shape. And part of that is not getting, you know, like heinous third world dysentery. You have to um, have the weather coincide. You have to have the conditions coincide. Your partner has to be in good shape and psychologically ready at that moment. Um, you know, you have to have acclimatized well. And, you know, so for any of these big challenges, all these factors have to come together at the same time. And it's just very easy for that not to happen. You know, basically anywhere in the world where you see mountains that are covered with snow and ice, there's a lot of bad weather, you know, in the Sierra, there's tons of good weather, but that's why the Sierra are basically hundred percent rock. And anywhere where you see these mountains that look super rad and inspiring because they're covered with all these crazy snow and ice formations, you know that there's going to be a lot of bad weather there because otherwise they'd be just rock mountains. And, um, so it's just a big part of it. And, um, so, but how do you, I, how do you deal with it? Like in the moment, like how do you bide your time when you're, when you're sitting there yeah, I want to realizing know that, that you're festering, yeah, you're festering. <laughs> yeah. how does Colin, Colin Haley fester? Well, I think that that is often <laughs> a little bit of 
a misconception in that these expeditions where there's a lot of bad weather and you don't get up anything, that doesn't mean that you're just sitting in your tent. Like, for instance, on my last Alaska trip, I came home in pretty good cardio shape, at least, because I was, you know, skiing my pack up to the base of the route and like putting a track in and then coming back down and then doing the same two days later because the first weather window didn't happen, but then maybe there was another one. And so you're not necessarily festering because the weather that you need to pull off a really big challenging climb is very different from the weather that you need to be able to hike up a glacier or hike a load to the base of the route or something like that. So you're not necessarily just festering. You're just not getting opportunities to attempt the big super rad thing. And you know, like Chalten is a great example. People who've never been there, they're like, oh, I wouldn't want to go to Patagonia because I don't want to just sit in a tent for a month. And anyone who's spent time in Chalten knows that that's not the case at all. Like you stay super active when you're in Chalten because even when the weather's way too bad to consider alpine climbing, the weather down low in the lowlands is not that bad at all. So you're constantly going sport climbing, going bouldering, going trail running. So anyways, the festering doesn't happen that much, but or as much as people think. But um, yeah, for sure, when you've invested all this time and money and effort to getting to this place and you want to try this big, huge thing and the opportunity just never arises and you just never get a chance, it's frustrating for sure. I think that for me personally, at this point, I've been on so many expeditions and I've had, you know, plenty of expeditions go super well and plenty of expeditions just be a dud where you barely manage to get up anything. I'm just used to it. And so I think that when I was maybe like 23 or something, I would be like a little bit more angsty about that. Like, oh, I really want to like get an opportunity. Like, when are we going to climb? And I think I've experienced enough that I'm just like, yeah, it's just part of it. You know, if it's good, we'll do our best. And if the weather sucks, we'll just make the most of our time. And that's that. You kind of touched on what I was really getting at there, because I think a lot of people who are getting into alpine climbing probably don't understand that aspect of it. And I could see the frustration mount if if they are confronted with the reality that it's just not a sure thing that they'll get to do what they want to do. And I'm sure they like intellectually understand that, but um, I think the reality of having to experience that and to and to really see the sunk costs of of the time and money that you put into this, you know, maybe one trip that you could ever hope to take to Alaska or something like that, and watch it watch it get pissed away in the in the, in bad storms and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess I don't have any like magic uh, advice <laughs> other than. It's just part of it. Well, it kind of speaks to it speaks to something that I think we started this conversation off on, which is this idea about measuring success in terms of longevity and your mm. conservative approach to mountaineering allowing you to be this guy who's having a long career and enjoying a long career and stuff. And I received some advice early on in my climbing career that was really it's always stuck with me where it's like, you're going to be climbing your whole life. Like there's no rush to get to that next thing that you want to do. And having that, that sense of uh, patience, I think is, is a really valuable skill to, uh, to bring into your climbing approach. 
Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think that for alpine climbing in general, and especially expeditions, patience is very valuable. I knew when I wasn't an alpine climber, when I would wake up like in the hut or whatever, and I'd hope it was like going to be shitty out because <laughs> I could crawl back into my sleep bag. Like you wake up and you're like, Ooh, I hear wind. That's a good sign. <laughs> I, I do. I am not a morning person, which is unfortunate because that's <laughs> yeah, that... not like a great setup for being an alpinist. So that's like my biggest problem with alpinism is I hate waking up early. <laughs> <laughs> can we start up at like noon is that cool with everybody <laughs> well actually that is one perk of climbing in alaska is because of the 24-hour daylight and the cold right. for a lot of climbing objectives there you can just start at noon or start at 3 p.m <laughs> which i think really look great <laughs> if you're gonna yeah because i'm i'm the same way and i'm a i'm an awesome night owl so it's like climb through the night yeah sure no problem yeah. get up early no i'm not doing yeah. that <laughs> So Colin, uh, you mentioned that you're headed to Chamonix, uh, to do some training out there, but what's next? Do you have big objectives that you're thinking about? You know, in general, as, as you guys, (laughs) I'll answer with like a very broad roundabout question as you guys, I'm sure are well aware, you know, the more it's hard to focus on and excel at different types of climbing. It's way easier to just focus on being a sport climber or being a big wall aid climber or something and, and just doing that. And I think one of the beauties of alpine climbing, as well as one of the difficulties is if you're trying to be like a good high level, modern alpine climber, you by necessity need to be decent at every type of climbing, you know, like every high level alpinist I know does everything from bouldering and has climbed El Cap aid routes and waterfall climbs and sport climbs. And, you know, of course does multi-pitch trad climbing. So that's in one aspect, I think one thing that's awesome about being an alpinist is you are forced to do every type of climbing. And I love every type of climbing. Um, And the downside is you're, you know, never able to like really excel at one because you're constantly have your time divided between these different disciplines. But even within alpine climbing itself, you know, I've spent a lot of my time climbing in Patagonia, which is one kind of alpine climbing where your technical climbing skills matter a lot. And your, for instance, cardiovascular fitness matters not that much. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have, you know, say like a 7,500 meter peak in the Himalaya where your technical level on that expedition at that moment might not matter that much, but your general fitness for big mountain stuff matters hugely. And so I do all this stuff and I'm constantly trying to decide like what I want to do on my next trip, because I love all these different kinds of climbing and these different kind of kinds of alpine climbing. And so I am constantly changing my mind about what's next (laughs) I rarely have plans more than six months in advance because I'm often thinking that I want to do one thing and then I realize, oh no, I really want to do that instead. So the last, you know, six years, I'm sure that my girlfriend can verify that I change my plans a lot, which is unfortunate, but I also like to just stay fluid and make sure that I'm doing whatever I'm like truly inspired to do at that moment. 
And yeah, that's a long way of leading into the fact that I, I have plans basically through March and nothing beyond that. And the plans that I have between now and then, I actually won't tell you. <laughs> Not because they are like super secret objectives that I don't want anyone else to learn about the ideas. But I have realized more and more over the years, and especially the last few years, that I have a strong preference to just keep my trips to myself until after I go on them. And it's not because they're like super top secret objectives. And it's not because the old school tight lipped mentality is, oh, you're not supposed to pre-spray, but it's just my genuine preference. And among other reasons, I think part of it is that I personally put so much pressure on myself just because I'm an ambitious person and I want to achieve my goals that I don't also want the added pressure of having told the whole world, oh, I'm going to Pakistan to try mountain XYZ. And then being there, like knowing that if I don't succeed, which of course is probably a 50% chance at least, <laughs> that I'm also like, not only letting myself down, but also having to like tell everyone else, yeah, like we didn't make it. No, we're not succeeding, blah, blah, blah. So for all these, yeah, for a number of reasons, including that one, I've realized I'd like to just keep my trips private and then share them afterwards. I mean, the Patagonia part of this is, you know, it's such a part of your career. It's like you're, you know, this, this maybe step down from Rolo as far as this guy who understands and is known for that area and has, you know, advanced it, you know, in, in a bunch of different ways. Do you ever see like Patagonia getting less important to you as far as a, a climbing area? Cause it's like, you know, there's a point at which you're like, okay, what else do you do? What's left kind of a thing? Where does that fit in your yeah. mind? I mean, it's such, you know, it's such a part of who you are in a lot of ways, I'm sure. Yeah, totally. In fact, I already around 2016 and then again around 2018 decided I was more or less done with climbing in Chalten. Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> how'd that I, go? <laughs> because I had already done so much climbing there over so many years that I was like, okay, I should climb in other places. And um, and I still genuinely believe that. But basically, I spent a few years going to other places instead. And I'm glad that I did go to other places. But also, I kind of came back to Chalten because it's so hard to beat the quality of the climbing and the type of experience you have climbing there is so incredible. And combine that with logistical factors, like you don't have visas and liaison officers and you don't have high altitude, which personally of all the different things that can make an alpine climb difficult, I find altitude in and of itself to be the least interesting type of challenge. So Anyways, it's the whole experience of climbing in Chalten and what makes the climbing there really difficult, I find very appealing. And I still do think in general that I should shift to other places because I've done so much there. But I keep going back because it's so good. <laughs> I think I am phasing out slowly, but I keep thinking like, oh, actually, I should go back because there's still this one thing. And and then even just thinking, well, you know, what else am I going to do in December and January? It's not really a good time anywhere else. And it's an awesome time there. So 
No, I always imagine you being that guy eventually, the the new Rolo, where we don't even use your last name anymore, um, <laughs> and people just talk about, yeah, Colin. Yeah, Colin. I saw Colin on my way out of town, and he gave me the nod, so I think I'm good. Because <laughs> yeah. most people probably don't even know Rolo's last name. It's just Rolo. <laughs> yeah, there's probably a number of people for whom that's true, yeah. Actually, okay, funny story. Literally Perfect. yesterday, I went and with a friend soloed this very easy mountain close to Seattle called the Tooth. It's like a common outing that friends and I do around here. That's kind of a mostly a trail run with some easy rock climbing at the end. And there was a mountaineers group on the route at the same time. And when we got to the base, this guy was like, "Are you Rolo?" <laughs> and I was like, "No." And he's like, oh, you're the other guy. <laughs> <laughs> he's obviously never seen a picture of Rolo. <laughs> I know. I, I wish I looked like Rolo. His handsomeness is infamous. <laughs> it's amazing. If you've been paying attention to comp climbing lately, then you know that athlete health and eating is once again in the news. The IFSC has fallen short of its goals for safeguarding athlete health, and several high-level protest resignations have ensued. On the latest bonus for Rope Guns, we invited Canadian Olympian Alana Yip to discuss her career and opinions about the health and well-being of comp athletes like herself. This and tons more delicious bonus kibble is available when you pledge your support at patreon.com slash runoutpodcast. And finally, become what you were always meant to be, a certified rope gun. On today's final bit, we feature an original composition for marimba by Jared Coley. Jared is working towards a Bachelor's of Music performance for percussion and has symphonic aspirations. As to his climbing, like so many others, the gym rabbit hole led him to a love of outdoor climbing and cragging trips across the country. So without further ado, we give you Jared Coley on marimba and his composition entitled Joyous.
just finished another episode of the runout podcast i'm andrew bisharat and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com and i'm chris Kalouse, and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com <laughs> dude come on <laughs> because chris at runoutpodcast.com is where emails go to die that's true we also have a patreon that you can support our show at and it's runoutpodcast.patreon.runoutpodcast.com no no, 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 no. It's patreon.com slash runoutpodcast. Yes. <laughs> if you dream of sending 514 every month for the rest of your life, <laughs> you should go and sign up at patreon slash runoutpodcast.com. <laughs> no, pot.com slash runoutpodcast. Something like that. Give us some money.